seated. My name is Ben Robertson, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, or Reformed University Fellowship, over at William & Mary, the campus ministry of this church. So a special welcome if your parents here visiting your children. It's a privilege to serve on the campus with them and for them, and, and we're glad that you're here. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, if you have time to stick around, I know a lot of you have to get on the road right away. I thought an appropriate uh, text for uh, Parents Weekend would be the story of God asking a father to sacrifice his son. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 22, uh, the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac. As you may know, Abraham is considered the father of the faith. Uh, he is the person uh, that God begins his new work of redemption uh, through in the Old Testament. He's very much a, a watershed uh, person, and this is very much the climax of his life of faith. Genesis chapter 22, starting at verse 1, and I will read through verse 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray now, Lord, that you would work by your spirit, through your word, that you would break our hearts and that you would mend them again to love and to live as you've called us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. My pastor in college was named Joe, and he told us a story then of when he was in high school and he was training to be a lifeguard at the local pool. And um, as all high school boys who want to be lifeguards, you know, he had the idea that he would go work on his tan, flex his muscles, wear his uh, Ray-Ban aviators, and impress the ladies. And that was his goal for the summer, and it sounded like a good idea. And as he was going through lifeguard training, they came to the final test of lifeguard training. And uh, the instructor was a petite, cute little girl named Ellen. And uh, he knew her from school. And uh, she said, okay, it's time for the exam. And Joe, you get to go first. And the final exam is you have to rescue someone who's drowning. Joe, you get to rescue me. So she jumps in the pool and swims to the middle of the deep end. And, you know, Joe kisses his biceps, jumps in. Uh, and as soon as he lays a finger on Ellen, she goes crazy like a cat in a bag, just starts scratching and clawing and pulling and kicking and twisting and thrashing about. Just goes ballistic. And eventually he's able to get her under control. He's much bigger and stronger than her. And he wrestles her, gets to the side of the pool, climbs out. He said he was bleeding. Like he, she, she had drawn blood. And he catches his breath. And he looks at her and he says, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and she says, what is wrong with you? You came here to impress ladies, but you're supposed to be here to save lives. He said he saved over 10 people that summer. The text here tells us that God tested Abraham. We often think of a test as being there so we can demonstrate what we know. And that's part of what a test is. It demonstrates something that's already there. But the biblical sense of test and the sense that Ellen had for Joe is that the test doesn't just get you to demonstrate something, it actually creates something in you. Joe didn't just show that he was capable of rescuing someone. The test itself taught him how to save other people's lives. And that's what Ellen wanted for him. And God wants something similar for Abraham here as he tests him, not just to demonstrate his faith, but a biblical test is something that we go through because God is working something in us. He is proving our faith. He is growing it. He is refining it. He is firming it up. And so we're going to look at the test that God gives to Abraham here in Genesis 22. And I, the first thing I want to look at in the test is what God asks. What does God ask of Abraham? He's obviously asking a lot. He's asking him to sacrifice his son. And that would sort of be enough for the text to just say. It could be a couple of verses long. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Abraham started to obey. God stopped him at the last second. God rewarded him. End of story. But the author of the text wants us to get something deeper. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to recognize what's going on here. And he does that in several ways with the choice of words that he uses, repetition of key terms, pacing of story and details that he includes. And I want to take a look at a few of those. First, uh, in this opening line of verse 2, where he says, Take your son... Your only one, the one that you love, is the original order in the Hebrew. 
Isaac, and go to the place that I will show you. Go to the mountain that I will show you. It's an echo of God's first words to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abraham had obeyed him. Abraham had already given up everything for God. And from the very beginning, God had promised him a son, an offspring. And now there's this echo towards the end of his life when he finally has that son, and that son has grown into a lad. The word lad probably means a 15 to 18-year-old. It's the same word that's used of the young men who are there to help. And now God is asking him to give that after he's already given really everything else. Give me your son, your son, your legacy, the only one. He's unique and irreplaceable, the one that you love, a term of affection, Isaac, more and more specific as the terms are repeated, which is the author's way of telling us to focus, to see how important it is, to see how special it is. Isaac, whose name means laughter, a sign of joy that God himself had promised to him, that God himself had named. He who laughs, sacrifice him on the mountain that I will show you. And then the repetition throughout the passage, if you noticed the repetition of your son or my son is repeated just in verses 1 through 14. It's repeated 10 times. When the author is repeating something over and over and over, it's to draw attention, to bring us in, to make it clear. And then as Isaac and his father are walking along and talking, Isaac says to his father, my father, which as you look in the commentaries and in the original Hebrew, it's not just a statement of person who sired me, but it's a term of endearment, a term of affection. To say he calls him daddy in this moment is to push it a little too far. But it's a term of affection, a term of closeness. And then Abraham responds in kind, here I am, my son. My son, your son. Emphasizing the affection that he feels. Um, the same week that was actually move-in day here uh, for new freshmen, um, there was a piece in the Washington Post uh, by a man named Michael Gerson talking about the pain of dropping off his son at college for the first time, which he had to do this year. He talks about how in the past we were to send our kids away uh, sooner in some ancient cultures, but he says that uh, he disagrees with that. Hear, hear what he writes about his son. 18 years is not enough. A crib is bought. Christmas trees get picked out. There's the park and lullabies and a little help with homework. The days pass uncounted until the end. The adjustment is traumatic. My son is on the quiet side, observant, thoughtful, a practitioner of companionable silence. I'm learning how empty the quiet can be now. I know it's hard on him as well, but with due respect to my son's feelings, I have the worst of it. I know something he doesn't. It's not quite a secret, but something incomprehensible to the young. He is experiencing the adjustments that come with beginnings. His life is starting for real. I have begun the long letting go. Put another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes. I have no possible future that is better without him close. Oh, I'm sorry to do that to you, parents. <laughs> uh, but I'm doing it to you because the text is doing it to us, isn't it? My son, my father, your only one, the one that you love, 
But Abraham is not dropping his son off at college to come home in the summer and one day have kids and grandkids. He's being asked to kill him. The text builds the sense of affection, but it also, in the pacing, builds the drama and the severity of what's going on. You see the details? If you're writing on parchment or on animal skin, you have an economy of words. And when you point out an incidental detail that's not that big of a deal, you're doing it for a reason. Why are we watching Abraham chop wood? It's ominous. And the tension is building. And then there's a three days journey for Abraham to think about it. To load the wood on the donkey. To speak to his servants. We're seeing him load the wood on his son. They're walking along together having a conversation. He's arranging the wood on the table. Setting up the altar. And then finally in slow motion. Reaching for a knife. And lifting it up. And then the word that's used there, it's not just to kill him, it says slaughter. If you're a hunter and you've ever gone through the process of cleaning a deer, this word means step one of that. It's gruesome. It's amazing. To give up his son for his son to die. Some of you know the pain of losing a child. Um, I never have, but I've had friends who have, and know that many of you have. Some of you know our daughter Naomi, when she was born, we had a scare. When she was born, she was blue, which she's supposed to be blue at that point, but then she's supposed to scream and turn pink. And she was opening her mouth in the shape of a scream, but her skin was still blue and there was no noise. And the nurses looked, and they had a furrowed brow, and they waited a moment, and then quickly they whisked her away and didn't tell us where they were going. And she was in a tent of oxygen, and she had tubes in her nose, and then they intubated her, and then they increasingly gave us vague references to what might be the problem, and then they said, Daddy, you need to get in the ambulance. And we rode down to Norfolk, and we're in the NICU. And I remember going down the hallway in the NICU, and she's on a little cart, and they went through these double doors, and they swung open and swung shut, and they said, you go wait in there. And because doctors, are rightfully paranoid that the very people they're trying to help are going to sue them should they fail. They weren't giving me the details of what was going on. They wouldn't want to say she's going to be okay because what if she wasn't? And I didn't know it was going to happen. It's a condition called meconium aspiration. If you're familiar, you may have heard of it. She's fine now, obviously. But some of you know the pain of that door swinging shut and it never coming open with your living child again. And that's what Abraham is facing, but not just facing that, but at his own hands. At the command of God. Why would God do this? Why would he ask that? Let me ask you, what do you treasure most? If you're a parent, I know the answer. It's exactly the same as Abraham. But all of us have something we treasure. Something that we would say, God can't take that from me. If he did, I couldn't go on. Something mysterious about God is that he loves us too much to let those things become our God. He loved Abraham too much to let Isaac be his savior because God had to be his savior. Now, we're not Abraham. We will not face this exact test. He played a very unique role in the history of the world. 
And yet the idea is here that God could ask anything of any of us, that he has the right to do so. A book I pull out and read about every two years is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a man named Peter Scazzaro, who's a pastor in New York City. And he describes in that book the process that everyone goes through, he says, where at some point or another you hit what he calls the wall. This moment where you've been trucking along in your happy spiritual life, but then things begin to fall apart. Your marriage breaks, someone dies, you learn that you have cancer, you're failing miserably, the midlife crisis, whatever it may be, and it could hit you at any time at different stages for different people. But he says, almost inevitably, everyone goes through it. And he says that you learn these five things from hitting the wall. Number one, and these are five things without which this text makes no sense. Number one, life is hard. I read an article the other day that said, happiness is life minus expectations. Insofar as it is higher than your expectations. And we expect life to be easy, don't we? Because we're really surprised when it's hard. Number two, you are not that important. Number three, your life is not about you. Number four, even if life were easy and you were that important and your life was about you, you are not in control. So much that happens in life is completely out of our hands. And number five, you are going to die. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life's not about you. You're not in control. And you are going to die. So happy Parents Weekend. Um, it's a nice time to just enjoy the weather, take a walk in CW after church. Um, but he's right, isn't he? So we want everything to work. We want everything to be good and fine. But these things are true. And Abraham faced these truths. And number two, how did Abraham pass this test? How did he do it? We won't, pa we won't face the same test, but we will all face tests. How did he pass? Well, he passed the test because he understands what this text is really about. That this text is not first and foremost about what God asks, but it's even more so about what God gives. What God gives. He gives several things here. First, he gives the ram. He gives the ram. Uh, I think a helpful way to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is understanding the idea of an acorn growing into an oak tree. And these ideas that are present in seed form in the Old Testament develop throughout the Bible and come to fruition in Christ. And we see them more fully. And here, as it says in verse 13, that Abraham looks up and he sees the ram and sacrifices the ram instead of his son. A way to describe this would be a substitutionary sacrifice. Sacrificing one thing in the place of the other. Abraham is the critical figure of the Old Testament. And at the most critical moment of his life, right in the middle of it, right at the climax, right at the crescendo, right at the very moment in his life that matters the most, we see a substitutionary sacrifice. Does that remind you of anything? The climax of human history, we see a substitutionary sacrifice in Jesus Christ. One for the other. And it's not a coincidence. Number two, 
And Christ is the ram. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, says John. He's the ram, but he's also the son. God gives his son. Because it says to him, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, God will bless him and make his name great and spread his offspring throughout generations. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, and Romans 8.32 says that he, God, who did not spare his own son. It's an echo of the exact words. He who did not spare his own son, will he not also give us all things? The God, the Heavenly Father, does not spare his own son. He is willing to sacrifice him for us, just as Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac for him. But not only that, we see the beauty of the father willingly sacrificing his son, as hard as that is to wrestle with, and more on that in a second. The willingness of Abraham, but also the willingness of Isaac. As I pointed out before, Isaac was about 15 to 18 years old, most likely. Abraham, about 115 to 120. Who do you think wins that wrestling match when they get to the altar? And even in the conversation, as they're going along the way, Isaac is saying, my father, yes, my son. I see the knife and the fire and wood on me. But no lamb. What's happening here? And lest you think that I'm just the Christian pastor cramming Jesus into the Old Testament, Jewish commentator Robert Alter, who's a Hebrew scholar and professor at Berkeley in California, says the same thing, that Isaac knew that we're supposed to read into this, that he is willingly going, knowing what Abraham has in mind. And he's asking the question along the way, just like Jesus asked the question along the way in the garden. Father, is there any other way? Dad, where's the lamb? And in both cases, the answer is basically the same. God's way, not ours. God will provide the lamb, my son. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Father, says Jesus. And he goes like a sheep to the slaughter. He's the ram and he's the son. He's also the seed or the offspring. Here, when the angel comes and is celebrating with Abraham and reiterating, reiterating the promises that Abraham has been given all through the book of Genesis, where he says, your offspring will be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heaven because you have obeyed my word. But then did you notice the switch? He's talking about a multitude with the word offspring or seed. But then he says this, and your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. And Paul in Galatians make a big deal, makes a big deal about the word seed being singular here and saying that it points to Christ, that Jesus is the ultimate offspring, the ultimate Isaac. Not just the nations that would come from him, but the one who would possess the gate of his enemy. And how does Jesus possess the gates of his enemy? In his resurrection. Paul tells us in Corinthians that the last enemy to be conquered is death. That's not just in Harry Potter, it's in the Bible. And it's true. The last enemy to be conquered is death. Jesus triumphs over death. And he says that the, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom of God. And the idea is not that we will defend ourselves from hell and we'll, we'll manage. But the idea of the gates not prevailing, what are gates? 
Gates are things we attack, right? When we're taking the city and Jesus has come to storm the gates of hell in his resurrection. He will possess the gates of his enemies. And he has done so in his resurrection. He's the ram, he's the sun, he's the seed. And then finally, one more thing. God says, go to the mountain that I will show you. It's the mountain called Moriah. Fast forward a little bit in the New Testament as this acorn grows into a sapling which will become an oak tree. We get to King Solomon and Solomon builds his temple. Guess where he built it? Mount Moriah. Tradition tells us that the Holy of Holies, we don't know exactly where Abraham was, but the tradition was that the Holy of Holies was, according to some threads of tradition, that that was right where Abraham had gone to sacrifice Isaac. The Holy of Holies would be the place where the priest would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And the temple, the dwelling place of God on the mountain, was the, was the special dwelling place of God. It was where God lived among his people, the sacrifice and the dwelling place of God. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. But he's not talking about the building that had already been torn down and rebuilt once. But he's talking about himself. I am the place of sacrifice. I am the holy of holies. I am the mountain of the Lord. I am the dwelling place of God with his people. It's me. He's the ram, he's the sun, he's the seed, he's the mountain. In Revelation 21 and 22, when John, when, when John looks forward to the consummation, the return of Christ, and the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated, what does he say about the temple? Where's the temple going to be in heaven? I saw no temple, he said, for the temple there is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who is Christ, the dwelling place of God, the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. How do we pass the test? When our trials come, be like Abraham. Try harder. Muster up your faith. How did Abraham pass the test? What did he name the mountain? Is the name of the mountain Abraham obeyed? Is the name of the mountain all hail Abraham, spiritual hero? Abraham is awesome, Abraham the king. The name of the mountain is the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Um, before we moved to Williamsburg, Dawn and I lived in St. Louis. And as you probably know, St. Louis is right along the Mississippi River. And um, there, they, the barges go up and down, you know, still doing transit the old school way, carrying goods and even people at times. People travel up and down the Mississippi on cruises, and so they have to keep the river clear so boats can pass through. So as silt builds up on the ground, on, 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 the, on the bed of the, of the river, they have to dredge the silt up onto the shore. And what happens is, as they dredge that silt up, it creates these huge mounds, this like really soft, fine sand. And as they sit in the sun, a hard crust forms on top. It becomes like this mountain that you can climb up. The problem is that sometimes uh, as the crust forms on the top, there's still wet sand in the middle that sinks down and washes out. And so you have this pocket under something that is almost like concrete. About 20 years ago in St. Louis, two brothers went out to play in the woods. 
and they left their neighborhood and went out to have a good time and then they didn't come home for dinner and it got dark and their parents called the authorities and pretty soon they formed a search team and they went looking up and down in the forest along the banks of the river and the two brothers, the younger brother was somewhere between eight and 10 as I recall and the older brother was about 12-ish years old and they found the, the younger brother buried up to his neck in the sand and he was unconscious but still alive and as they were digging him out as the sand the weight of the sand came off of his chest he could breathe again and they revived him and while they were still digging him out they shook him awake and they said where's your brother where's your brother and he said I'm standing on his shoulders so he had fallen through the crust had broken and he had fallen down into the pocket and his older brother jumped in after him and as the sand came pouring in over them the older brother lifted up his younger brother on his shoulders and shoved his head up above the sand so he wouldn't suffocate. He died for his brother. I asked before, what kind of God is worth giving up everything for? The God who gives up everything for us. This is Christ. He is our older brother. He is the son who comes in and dies for the sake of the others at cost to himself, willingly. And we are tested by a God who tests his people, as my friend Rob Wooten puts it, not so that we can show ourselves faithful to him, but so he can prove himself faithful to us. That is the purpose of his test, and trusting in that is how we pass the test, just as Abraham did. As the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham, looking ahead to the resurrection, he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, which he, figuratively speaking, did receive him back. As Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He is a God worth following. He is a God who not only asks for our sacrifice, but gives us his own. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would, in faith, trust on your promises, your faithfulness, your grace, and your mercy to us. Thank you that you are the God who doesn't just demand from us, but who has given everything you've demanded and more for our sake so that we could trust and follow you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, and we pray that we would live lives that have been transformed by it. We ask this in your name.